When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. China is something that actually unites Republicans and Democrats. We have a huge problem with cybersecurity, and it's growing. We've got to have wealthier people and corporations paying more of a fair share. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. President Biden likes to be the big thing. He likes to put out the big concepts. There's still a long way to go with this flat tax. We have to break the partisan bond. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. All right, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here co-hosting with Emily Wilkins, my fellow Bloomberg government reporter. We're in for Joe today here on Sound On. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk to Gilberto Hinojosa, who's the state Democratic Party chairman in Texas. We've got to ask him about everything we're seeing with state lawmakers, Democratic state lawmakers, leaving the state of Texas amid a fight over voting rights legislation. We're also going to hear from Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican from South Florida, perfect lawmaker to talk to about everything we're seeing in Cuba. Again, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here co-hosting with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. Uh, you know what? The first person we have to bring in uh, to set the stage here before we get to our our lawmaker interviews and get into what's happening in Texas is Wendy Benjaminson, who's uh, the Bloomberg Washington deputy managing editor, who's going to help set the stage for everything we're seeing in Washington and Texas on voting rights. Uh, And and let's hear what the president had to say about this, because President Biden delivered really a, a rather emotional and somewhat combative speech in defense broadly of the idea of uh, broadening the right to vote. Let's hear what the president has to, had to say. It's about who gets to count. Who gets to count whether or not your vote counted at all. It's about moving from independent election administrators who work for the people to polarized state legislatures and partisan actors who work for political parties. To me, This is simple. This is election subversion. We have another clip I want to play in particular from the president speaking on the likelihood uh, of anything getting to his desk because it's a high priority for Democrats in Congress, the For the People Act. Let's play what he said on that. As soon as Congress passes the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, I will sign it and let the whole world see it. Okay, but is that going to happen? That's the most obvious question here. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you spell out the the prospects for really any kind of voting rights legislation, uh, particularly with an eye on the Senate? 
Right. Well, thanks for having me. And um, I think the answer on the prospects is slim. Uh, the president, for all of his rhetoric about a national imperative and all of his strong talk today, is so far unwilling to pressure the Senate to change the filibuster. And without getting it into the intricacies of congressional maneuvering here, basically it means the difference between needing 50 votes plus a tiebreaker from Vice President Kamala Harris, or 60 votes, which would, in this Senate, require 10 Republicans. They're not going to get 10 Republicans. And so um, the president is under tremendous pressure from the left to change, to pressure the Senate to change those rules, but he's an old-school senator himself, and he is simply not willing to do it at this point. So at, with that, no, these bills aren't going to pass. You know, Wendy, President Biden, he didn't even mention the filibuster in his remarks today. And as you point out, you know, you have a number of voting rights activists, of progressive Democratic lawmakers who are really pushing for this issue and have started to making pleas to Biden to really use his power of the White House to try to convince senators to change their minds. We haven't seen anything like that at this point. But I'm wondering, is the fact that there's still so much tension around this issue, is this going to lead to a further divide within the Democratic party and perhaps a loss of support from Biden from within his own party. Absolutely, that could happen. And the Democratic Party has never been, you know, that united on anything. There's always, you know, a surface unity. And then as soon as you scratch the surface, they're, you know, tearing each other apart. But um, the truth is that the um, the progressive left um, is making a lot of noise and has a lot of seats, but, you know, they are consistently not winning the, the big seats at the ballot box. While, you know, the mayor of Buffalo was just elected, of Buffalo, New York, as a socialist, the, the liberal candidates for New York City mayor, for example, didn't make it, and a centrist won. So I think Biden is a little comfortable in the fact that, you know, he has – he has the support in this of sort of the moderate centrists um, and any sort of anti-Trump Republicans who might want to vote with him. And he thinks he can hold off the progressives a little longer. So, Wendy, when the president speaks very, very forcefully about the idea of voting rights, what exactly is he doing? Is, is this a really just a 2022 campaign line with it they're going to use against Republicans? Or what is the purpose of this kind of high profile speech? Sure. I mean, he he is signaling that he is, you know, against the big lie, as he called it again today, that, you know, President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, um, you know, claimed that he won the election. This is his way of signaling that he's, you know, in spirit behind this. But these this particular bill, and I think he's also pressuring Democrats in the state legislatures, like the Texans, to um, to fight these laws. But there's just only so far he'll go in changing the Senate rules. Wendy, thank you so much. I understand now on the line we have joining us uh, Gilberto Inahosa, who is the chairman of the Texas State Democratic Party. Uh, now, you may have heard in the news uh, the exodus, the exodus of Democrat uh, Democratic legislators from the Capitol and from the state of Texas to avoid allowing a quorum in order to block a Republican uh, voting rights, uh, not vote, uh, it, it, an election bill that Democrats believe was too restrictive, uh, including uh, measures that would, for example, ban 24-hour uh, polling places. We'll get more into that. Uh, Mr. Uh, Chairman of, of your state party, Mr. Inahosa, thank you so much for joining us. I have one simple question to start. What exactly do you see as the end game of the Democratic legislators leaving? Uh, I mean, isn't it the case that uh, we can 
see one special session called after another and Republicans eventually can force this through? What, what is the end game here? Well, th- there's several parts to this end game. I mean, I think first and foremost is that uh, these um, legislators, four, fifth, uh, four out of every five of them is, is a person of color, mm-hmm. uh, did not want to be a part of a, an effort by the governor of this state and the Republican Party uh, to deprive people, their their constituents, of the right to vote. I mean, what this uh, governor and these legislators were doing, the Republicans, were, were trying to force these legislators to pr- participate in an effort to, to, to pass voter suppression legislation that directly targets African-Americans and Mexican-Americans and, and other Hispanics. Uh, and so that, that they just, you know, weren't willing to, to participate in this, in this kind of a, a process that is clearly designed for that and has nothing to do with uh, uh, election integrity. I mean, even the Secretary of State in the state of Texas after the 2020, who is a Republican, uh, after the 2020 uh, election said that this election was a, the, the, the most fraud-free election in the history of the state of Texas. So, uh, let- and so... The, I'm sorry to interrupt. I do. I want to follow up, particularly on one point you made, and at least give you a response to, I think, a criticism of this action by Republicans, because you know you say they don't want to participate in this, but why not vote no? And is there maybe a little bit of hypocrisy in coming to Washington, talking supportively of a a voting rights bill that Democrats have pushed and have complained about the that being stopped by the filibuster in the Senate and then effectively, I think, filibustering by leaving the state there. Is, is there any hypocrisy there? None at all. Remember, remember what the filibuster rule was established. It was established, it is, it is a creature of the Jim Crow era. It was a, 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 a rule uh, that was established by Southern senators to prevent um, the enactment of laws to benefit African-Americans, civil rights laws, laws to, to give them the right to vote. Um, and so it, that, that creature of the Jim Crow movement, is, uh, Jim Crow era, is still exists in Washington, D.C., uh, and it is still being used uh, to, uh, protect, uh, to prevent the protection of the uh, civil rights and the voting rights of of African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. What, what the Democrats in, in Texas were doing was making sure that this governor uh, did his job, and that job would be to, to, to uh, push legislation that was going to benefit all the citizens of the state of Texas, uh, like, for example, fixing the electric grid that caused so many hundreds of people to die in February uh, and, and much suffering as a result of that. Or fix the fact that we don't have an access to an uh, health care, access to health care. We have more uninsured people in the state than any other state in the country, and thousands of them died. Chairman, I'm sorry to interrupt, but but we don't have too much time left, and I do really want to ask very quickly on the strategy of lawmakers coming to D.C. specifically. I mean, they're meeting right now with Vice President Kamala Harris. They've met with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. They've met with Joe Manchin. But the fact of the matter is, is that there has already been a lot of pressure 
on the Senate to change the filibuster and pass voting rights. And it really is at a stalemate at this point. So is the idea here just to sort of raise awareness for the issue? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, the, the, the pressure tactic has, has already been tried quite unsuccessfully. Well, there's a lot of pressure points that need to be, you know, it, I think, pushed. I mean, there, this H.R. Uh, 1 is a large piece of le- legislation on voting rights that some moderate Democratic senators have problems with. So I think the Democrats, the more progressive uh, element of the Democratic Party, has to come to terms that, that they're not going to be able to get everything in H.R. 1. And so the Democrats that are coming in from Texas are wanting to talk not only to the to the uh, Senator Cinemas and Senator Mansions of, of, of Washington, but the the, 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 the the progressive Democrats that don't want to budge from putting together a, a bill that could be, I think, accepted by more moderate Democrats. And, and there, there can always right. be a way to let the filibuster rule exist, but at the mm-hmm. same time allow for such voting rights legislation to pass because right. of the big impact that it has. And if anybody can pull this off, it's Joe Biden. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for joining us. Gilberto Hinojosa, the state party chairman of the Democratic Party in Texas. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, a Republican from Ohio, came to Congress with a stellar resume. Son of Cuban immigrants, a first-round draft pick for the Indianapolis Colts, and a graduate of Stanford Business School. But now... What Gonzalez is best known for is being one of 10 Republicans to vote to impeach former President Donald Trump. A look into this race is really a look at the tensions within the Republican Party and the question if Republicans like Gonzalez have a chance to survive. Joining us now is Joshua Green, Bloomberg Businessweek national political correspondent who wrote the story. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to start off by asking a little bit. When you were looking into this profile, you know, there were 10 lawmakers who voted against uh, Trump, who voted for his impeachment. What particularly drew you to Gonzalez? You know, what drew me to Gonzalez was a couple of things. I mean, on the one hand, some of those uh, members who voted against Trump have really made that vote the centerpiece of their identity. And I'm thinking of people like Liz Cheney, who famously was ousted from her House leadership spot and is using that vote to kind of raise her profile and raise money and publicity. Gonzalez is interesting because he voted to impeach, um, but, but it's not what he's centering in his campaign. And if you take that and you combine it with his biography, Gonzalez is the type of Republican that the party was desperate to attract and, and, and have run for office and have vote for them before Donald Trump came along. As I said in the lead to that piece, I mean, he represents what used to be the future of the Republican Party. So to me, his race is so interesting because it's really um, a struggle between the old vision of what the Republican Party should be and the Trump vision. And I think that his primary race next spring against a pro-Trump candidate is really going to shed a lot of light on where the Republican Party is as far as whether or not they're going to stick with Trump and continue to define themselves that way or go back or, or maybe go forward um, to a more kind of positive, traditional type of Republican. I realized in the story, Gonzalez told you that the angriest, loudest voices are the ones that get the most airtime. Among the quieter voices within the Republican Party, is there a sense of how much support there is for a solidly conservative yet anti-Trump Republican like Congressman Gonzalez? 
You know, it's the question that everybody in politics, Republicans, Democrats, especially insiders, are asking themselves. Obviously, Trump is always the loudest voice in the room, and his, his supporters tend to kind of dominate cable news and social media. They show up at rallies, and they make a lot of noise. But you know, he also lost the presidential election. Seventy-eight million people, I think, voted against him. So certainly there is, there is sentiment running against Trump. What nobody knows, because we're really not able to measure in any trustworthy way through opinion polls, is whether or not that quiet Republican sentiment is enough to, to essentially save somebody like Congressman Gonzalez, whether there are enough Republicans in his Republican-leaning district that are willing to support him despite the fact that he voted to impeach Trump. What, what was so interesting in doing this profile is Gonzalez is convinced that there are. I mean, he says people come up to him all the time. They say, hey, you know, I don't really advertise this. I don't want to make a big deal out of it publicly, but I support what you're doing. I'm going to vote for you. Whereas most political insiders, handicappers, don't think Gonzalez is going to survive this primary because Trump is still the dominant figure in the Republican Party, and Republican voters tend to do what Trump wants them to do. So, Josh, can you tell us more about this district, Ohio's 16th district? It's kind of the outskirts of north, northeast Ohio. It's, I believe, 90-plus percent white. It is a district that Trump won with a little more than 56 percent of the vote. That It may not be quite as solidly read as Liz Cheney's Wyoming, but what is the political geography we're talking about here? Are these really, really conservative people? Are these moderates who might admire what Gonzalez has done. What what kind of district are we talking about? Well, what makes it interesting is it's sort of a combination of, of, of many of those things. I mean, this is a district that's basically southwest of Cleveland. It has a very heavy um, military veteran presence. That's something that Gonzalez, as a congressman, has focused on as constituent services for veterans. It's, it's, it's certainly a Republican district. There isn't much chance that a Democrat is going to win this district. So what really matters is not the general election next November. It's the Republican primary uh, next spring. And the question that a lot of people have is, as you said, this isn't a deep red district like you might get in Ohio or some super rural area that's going to be very Trumpy and, and punish somebody like Gonzalez. And Gonzalez also is not a moderate. Um, he's, he's a you know, very serious conservative guy, serious voting record. And I think his hope is that there are enough um, Republicans not just moderate Republicans, but Republicans who, who you know, maybe supported Trump but think it's time for, for Trump to kind of move on and for the party to turn to somebody else that are, that are willing to support him. Um, I mean, the other thing working in Gonzalez's favor is that he ran for reelection on doing two things, both of which he is managing to do, and that is to, uh, you know, create and disseminate a COVID vaccine. We now see that succeeding across the country with the economy reopening. And the other thing was to negotiate a bipartisan infrastructure bill. He was very uh, involved in that. And of course, a few weeks ago, Joe Biden came out and announced that there was a bipartisan infrastructure agreement. We'll see if it makes it through Congress. But that bill had Gonzalez's stamp on it. So he can go back to his voters and say, look, you may not like that vote, but I'm a good conservative. I went out and I did what you elected me to do. Um, I deserve another term. And you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see if he can pull that off. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. That was Joshua Green, a national political correspondent with Bloomberg Businessweek. It's a really great article. Very much encourage you to read it. You know who this reminds me of a little bit? It reminds me of John Runyon, the former congressman. Uh, you may remember him either as a congressman for a few years or as a longtime Philadelphia Eagles uh, lineman. 
uh, one of the, the few people like Anthony Gonzalez to sort of use the NFL fame to then run for office. Uh, back then, John Runyon left and, and kind of complained, you know, at least in football, you know exactly who your opponent is. Uh, sometimes you get trampled when you come to Congress. Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins, my uh, fellow Bloomberg government reporter co-hosting today. On the line, we have Congressman Mario diaz Balart of Florida. Uh, I really wanted to ask him not only about everything happening in Cuba, but as I mentioned, he's a member of my favorite, everybody's favorite committee, the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. I want to, I think, start with the simplest question about what we are seeing in Cuba with the protests uh, that really built up starting over the weekend. One, I'm curious what your take is on exactly what the cause is. Is this a ca- caused by uh, the policies we saw uh, imposed by the Trump administration? Is the coronavirus and the low vaccination rate part of this. What do you attribute this to and and why now? Yeah, well, Jack and Emily, thank you for the opportunity. I'll tell you what the cause is. It's communism. That's what it is. It's lack of freedom. And and, uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, Take the word for the folks that are hitting the street, those brave uh, men and women who are hitting the streets. They are chanting. They are demanding freedom. They're demanding uh, the end of this, uh, you know, this dictatorship that's now uh, repressed the people for 62 years, not to mention the fact that, by the way, obviously it's been a, a national security threat to the United States, but people are hitting the streets because they are fed up. They're, they don't want to take this anymore. They understand that the, uh, that the only way to, to, to for, for prosperity and for everything is for this regime to go, and freedom is the answer. You know, Congressman, earlier today, Jack and I were speaking with William Leo Grandi, a professor of government at American University, who's written a book about U.S.-Cuba relationships, and he noted that some of the anger that we're seeing, some of the impetus for these protests can be traced back to restrictive policies in the U.S., including one, and, and he highlighted this one, from former President Trump that blocked cash transfers to Cuba. And I'm wondering, is this something that the Biden administration should be addressing? Should they be lifting these sanctions, keeping these restrictions, what does the Biden administration's role here need to be? Yeah, Emily, a good question, uh, but I will tell you with all due respect to the professor, that's absurd. It is absolutely absurd and it's frankly patronizing. Look, again, listen to what the Cuban people are saying. They're saying freedom. They've gone to, uh, we've seen the images of them going to the, the, the headquarters of the Communist Party in Havana and they're saying this is not your country. This has nothing to do Obviously, it's a poor country because of communism. Obviously, there's misery and there's repression because of this regime. People are fed up with that. Now, are there circumstances that maybe have, you know, sparked it? Potentially. But the, the reality is this has nothing to do with remittances. With, this is all to do with freedom. And, by the way, I'm sure you all saw some of those images, where, which, which is similar to what we saw in Hong Kong and, and places like Iran, uh, where people who are seeking freedom, they're carrying the American flag because to them and to the world, by the way, something that more Americans need to remember, the American flag is the symbol of freedom. They're not carrying the British flag, the Swedish flag. Those are democracies. They're carrying the American flag, and they're, and they're carrying the American flag because they understand that the United States has stuck with them, not doing business with the regime, not helping finance or legitimize the regime, which, by mm-hmm. the way, was the atrocious thing that the Obama administration did. No, the United States has stuck with the Cuban people has uh, imposed tough sanctions on the regime. That is something that the people support because they want to get rid of the regime. And to say that it's like, oh, because of, you know, a specific little policy that the United States did? No, no. It's because of 62 years of communist 
repression. That is the cause, and the, uh, the Cuban people, unlike what this professor may understand, are smart enough to understand that the cause is communism and that the solution is freedom. So, Congressman, I do want to ask about a, a specific little thing. Maybe it's a specific little thing, but I'm curious because I, I know you actually brought this up at a markup today, uh, the proposal to reduce funding for TV and Radio Marti. Uh, and when you look at th those uh, organizations, the Office of Cuba Broadcasting and what the federal government funds in terms of broadcasting uh, what is supposed to be reliable news into a, a communist country, uh, what can we see from you? Are, are you going to push for uh, an increase uh, in funding for those, you know, when you address uh, sort of the idea of how the U.S. communicates with the Cuban people, what, what can we see from you as a House Republican? What, what can you do uh, to try to address this? Yeah, Jack, I mean, so at a time when the Democrats in, in the House are proposing 16 to 18 percent increases in everything you can think of except for homeland security mm -hmm. and uh, defense, uh, one of the areas where they're, they're actually reducing what Congress has done in a bipartisan way for many years is funding for broadcasts into Cuba to break the logjam that exists. As you know, now they've even shut down the Internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, funding for democracy programs dealing with uh, Cuba. So why they would pick those two areas to cut uh, remains uh, a mystery. Actually, it's really not a mystery. But while they're increasing funding in, in places that you can even not imagine, those are areas that they've decided to cut. So, no, I'm going to continue to fight to make sure that we don't abandon the Cuban people when, they are, when we are most needed. And so, by the way, here's what the administration needs to be doing. They need to rally, rally the world, uh, the dem democracies in the world, on the concept that the regime in Cuba is illegitimate, 62 years without elections. Mm -hmm. Now they're, you know, the old man is now, the second brother is, is, is basically now on his way out, and they want to now give somebody else somebody else the power. No. Rally the world. It's an illegitimate uh, uh, regime. It's got to go. Number two is help with, for example, Internet. The United States has the technology to provide Internet to the Cuban people so that the regime can't uh, eliminate it. There are a lot of things that the United States can do. And by the way, sanction those that are helping the regime. Um, it's something that uh, President uh, Trump did, did very successfully, and by the way, was right. sanction the regime, the thugs, and also those who are helping the regime. Can I sneak in a real quick one on infrastructure in about 20 seconds? Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, is uh, saying that the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill won't move in the House without that next reconciliation bill. As a Republican, are you open to voting for an infrastructure bill uh, if it is then tied to a partisan Democratic bill? No, I mean, that's, 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 that's a fool's errand. In other words, if, if you can't say bipartisan and then the sunset, talk about reconciliation. Mm -hmm. uh, reconciliation is an effort to not have bipartisan support. And so uh, I'm hoping that the speaker will decide to get real and have bipartisan conversations. Infrastructure is an area that we could reach bipartisan consensus, but not if you say, okay, give me, you know, let's negotiate a little part of it bipartisan, and then I'm right. going to railroad through a, uh, a partisan uh, issue. That's not the way it works. Right. Congressman, thank you so much. That was Congressman Mario diaz Balart, Republican from South Florida. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to easily manage risk 
from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You have made it to the end of Tuesday. Congratulations. I am Emily Wilkins here with my Bloomberg government co-host, Jack Fitzpatrick. And joining us are some of our favorite people to have on the show, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. We're going to cover a couple other big news stories coming out of D.C. today. Let's start in the halls of Congress, where a bipartisan group of senators has again gathered after a two-week recess to discuss the infrastructure bill and cracks in the bipartisan agreement have begun to show. We have sound on Senator Mark Warner emerging from a closed door meeting and telling reporters that he is confident that he and his colleagues from both sides of the aisle will be able to reach a deal. This is an opportunity to show the country and the world that uh, even in the midst of all the kind of partisan wrangles, there are still a vast majority of senators that want to work together to get this done. We are hearing some concerns from Republican senators. One is that while lawmakers did come to an agreement on how to pay for the bill, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, which issues reports and scores on the actual amount of spending estimated, might wind up disagreeing that the whole thing is paid for. That could threaten some Republican support. We've also heard from Republican Senator Tom Tillis that he's worried that Democrats are still connecting that infrastructure bill with the larger reconciliation package that has all those other items that Democrats want and Republicans do not want to pass. And so, Jeannie, I want to see if you can sort of put this in context. Is this just part of negotiations to kind of see this back and forth, we will, we won't going on? Or could this bipartisan infrastructure bill be an actual trouble? You know, I I think at this point it can be an actual trouble, and I'll tell you why. We heard Senator Joe Manchin say to reporters that he would only back a bill that was fully financed by tax revenues. And, excuse me, he raised the issue of debt. How much debt, he asks, can you handle? So we've got the moderates, and this is something that we've heard from Warner and others have warned about, that may jump off if this is not fully paid for. You've also, on the other hand, got Republicans toying with the idea on another sort of area about the debt ceiling and, and playing chicken with that. And you also, as, as, as you both know well, we're waiting for a CBO at some point, the CBO to score this thing. So I think it is still in as precarious a position as it ever was at this point, and it's all about the pay for Jeannie, I think that's a really good point, especially on what we're going to see from the CBO, which is such a a small, opaque organization that can have such a pivotal effect on what happens in Washington around the country. In particular, I'm really interested to see how the lawmakers follow up on IRS enforcement. If you, uh, the idea, of course, is if you give more money for IRS enforcement, there's a lot of money out there that is supposed to, under current law, be collected. This could be a big revenue raiser. But one, 
One, there are a number of Republicans who are seemingly turning against that in Congress. Two, that's a really tough one for the CBO to score. So I'm not sure if officially they're going to get as much of the, the pay-for money as they think from that. Rick, what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the pay-fors? Am I being too pessimistic on thinking that this whole IRS enforcement idea is just not the convenient thing that lawmakers thought uh, it would be a, a couple months ago? Yeah, let me just say, Jeannie and I have been at odds on infrastructure since it was first discussed in January. Uh, I actually think they're going to get a bipartisan bill. They have 22 members, uh, half Republican, half Democrat, uh, have already done the hard work. Um, uh, I think it, it's best summed up by Mitt Romney, who took on the CBO and said, you know what? CBO can score it any way it wants. I'm going to look at it from my own point of view, and if I agree with the numbers, then I agree with the numbers. So CBO, as you, you rightly point out, Jack, is a very important organization that is mostly ignored in, in these kinds of budget fights and negotiations. You know, Rick, I just want to follow up with that for just a minute. Can you just sort of dive into the thinking of some of these senators? I mean, you know the GOP. Uh, I think normally the, the thought process that we've seen for some of the, the past reconciliation bill with COVID, in particular the one in March, was that Republicans didn't vote for it. They criticized it heavily. I mean, what is so different now about this infrastructure package that you think that Republicans are going to overcome some of these concerns that that we're hearing and eventually get to yes. Well, first of all, the reconciliation bill had no Republican input, right? I mean, it was a Democratic bill built by Democrats, uh, funded the way Democrats wanted to fund it, and, and got no Republican support. So so I don't think it's comparable. In this case, a, a large group of Republicans, uh, frankly, probably supported by leadership, have entered into a negotiation and basically got the spending the way they want it. And so, so there's a big infrastructure their big investment in this infrastructure bill by Republicans. And and by the way, Republicans like infrastructure spending, right? This is the kind of stuff we want in, in public spending because it generates more economic activity than it costs. And so I think you have a legitimate interest in seeing a bill done. And I think the the president has really come a long way of giving Republicans what they wanted on this. I mean, if anything, the folks who are most concerned about this bill are the Democrats and uh, and and how that wants, you know, how they're trying to tie it to a reconciliation bill, which, frankly, even has only partial support within a Democratic caucus in the Senate. Well, I'm sure, uh, Rick and Jeannie, that we will both be talking to you much more on this topic. But I do want to switch to some breaking news this afternoon. President Joe Biden has nominated former Republican Senator Jeff Flake to be ambassador to Turkey. Uh, Jeff Flake, you know, he was a Republican in the Senate. And then when Trump got elected, Flake was one of the more outspoken Republicans against some of Trump's policies and behaviors. And Blake wound up being a surrogate for President Biden when he was campaigning on the campaign trail. And we actually have a bit of sound uh, from Flake's farewell address on the Senate floor back in December of 2018, commenting on the state affairs in American politics. I believe that we all know well that this is not a normal time and that the threats to our democracy from within and without are real. And none of us can say with confidence how the situation that we now find ourselves in will turn out. Let us recognize from this place here today that the shadow of tyranny is once again enveloping parts of the globe. And let us recognize as authoritarian, as authoritarianism reasserts itself in country after country that we are by no means immune. 
Now, Flake will need to be confirmed by the Senate, including by his former Republican colleagues, many who have remained quite loyal to Trump. Uh, Jeannie, give us the rundown here. How difficult might it be for Flake to be confirmed as the ambassador to Turkey? I think Flake does get confirmed. You know, I think there will be Republicans who peel off um, in deference to President Trump. I think we can't forget that despite supporting uh, President Biden and taking on President Trump, Jeff Flake is a very conservative guy. And I think we forget that. Um, I also think this is an important appointment for the president because the president has long wanted to show that he is reaching across the aisle. And these types of appointments are one way to do that. I think he wants to do it in other ways, but these are ways in which the president can say, I am bringing Republicans into the fold. And again, and, and Rick knows this well, um, this is a conservative guy. This is not some like, you know, you know, liberal Republican right. in Jeff Lake. So I think it's an important appointment uh, across the board. And I do think he gets the support of his colleagues, even with peel off. Yeah, I wanted to ask Rick, uh, I wanted to ask you particularly considering how long you worked for John McCain and actually something that came to mind is, uh, I believe this is only the second Republican nominated by Biden, uh, the first being Cindy McCain. Uh, so, uh, you know, is considering that Jeff Flake was really originally sort of a Tea Party guy, how do you do the compare and contrast? Has Jeff Flake turned himself into somewhat of uh, the, the, the next John McCain? Or give us a compare and contrast of those two. You know, they always got along extremely well. I mean, you know, fellow senators from Arizona, they were not only uh, uh, terrific allies in the Senate, but, um, you know, they were great friends. And uh, and I think that this represents a, uh, I think, a new wave with a lot of Republicans, which was uh, they chose to support um, uh, Joe Biden and his presidential campaign without actually giving up their Republican credential. I mean, you, you point out he's a conservative. Absolutely. Cindy McCain, you know, no slouch. I mean, she's not a uh, she's not a moderate. She's, you know, and John McCain himself, you know, uh, really uh, uh, maintained a strong conservative, if not deal making credential. And the fact that both of them come from Arizona, Arizona was one of, if not the key state in the swing toward Biden to win the presidency, I think really reflects a, a instinct that Joe Biden had, not sure it's, you know, held by the rest of his administration, but to reach out to Republicans, uh, not to turn them into Democrats, but to use their capabilities right. to help forward his agenda. Rick, I, I just wanted to ask real quick, too, you know, let's not overlook the fact that this is an ambassador to Turkey, which is a, an important relationship and a difficult re relationship. But how significant is this as a post for, for Flake? It's not exactly honorary. This is pretty important, right? No, this is a, a very difficult post uh, held in the past by uh, career diplomats, you know, with a lot of uh, diplomatic skill. Uh, I think it's a, a great kudos to, to former Senator Flake for for getting this job because it, it is at the heart of a lot of the debate within NATO. Um, this administration has already laid down a pretty tough line uh, with uh, Prime Minister Erdogan um, uh, related to the Armenian gen genocide, uh, Russian weapon systems, uh, Kurds in Syria. I mean, it's a it's a full agenda, and I think that this will put Flake back in the hot seat, uh, right. which I think he enjoyed when he was in the Senate. Well, Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, thank you guys so much for joining us today, as well as our other guests, Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart and Texas Democratic Party Chairman Gilberto Hinojosa, as well as Wendy Benjaminson with Bloomberg. I'm Emily Wilkins signing off with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. Have a great rest of your evening. This 
is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.